Yeah, that's a big praise the Lord. That's beautiful. Good morning. How are you? Thank you. Hey, did you all get my letter? Looks like this. How many of you got this letter? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read it to you. They do that on television and the late night shows. I always wanted to do that. Just occurred to me I could. Harriet Gray, many of you know Harriet. Harriet is, has been an intern with us for, uh, oh, three, at least three years. And uh, Harriet Gray is returning August 10th to Scotland to attend the wedding of her sister and rejoice with her family in Lucy's marriage. This, many of us know, maybe some of you didn't, but now you do. But what you also need to know is that Harriet is going to stay in Scotland. She's going to stay to serve the Lord in children's work in the United Kingdom. And Harriet has had a very deep sense of God's calling to serve the Lord with the training that she's received here in our intern program. And she's ready. For Harriet, her town, her country, the greater UK, they need the gospel and the good news of Jesus and the news of God's great love. And so Harriet has this burden for her family, and she also has this burden for her country. Frankly, I had this vision for Harriet, uh, her gifts, her abilities, what God was doing in her life. But in my vision, Harriet uh, was being prepared by the Lord for such great things right here right here at Grace, right here as a part of our outreach and our ministry to children in Visalia. This vision, of course, when I speak of it, wasn't just a personal dream. I just uh, witnessed what God was doing in Harriet's life. And pretty quickly, you get the vision of the marvelous work that God is doing in her life and through here through her so i just imagined what god was doing in and through her right here and yet god is going to do something in and through her right there as uh, she follows god's leading kathleen punt put it this way Harriet is ready. She could take over and lead our children's ministry or that of any ministry God has for her anywhere. Well, if you know Kathleen, that's high praise. And in my case, I just had to catch up with what uh, God was doing and get on the front end of his vision. That was her being prepared for the greater things of his outreach and service there in the UK. And that's really what our intern ministry is all about. And that's what it's designed to do, to ready dedicated women and men for God's work and send them into his fields white for harvest. You know, we remind each other to think kingdom, think globally. 
in every way, in all the time, to think beyond ourselves and see what God is doing. God's thoughts are definitely way bigger than our thoughts, and I'm used to catching up. I know you, like me, will catch up too, and it's pretty exciting when you think about it. So on August 2nd, that's a Sunday, the first Sunday in August, before Harriet boards a plane for Scotland, we as her church are going to pray together over Harriet and acknowledge what God is doing. We're going to thank Him and join in His blessing of Harriet and celebrate her and God's future for her. I hope that you, if you can, will make it a point to be here with us on that day, and we'll fill you in on the details uh, as the day draws near. So, you know, we're excited about what God is going to do, and uh, we praise the Lord for Harriet, and I know that if you know her, then you rejoice with us in that. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to read my letter. I put a lot of time into this. It took a lot of time, so I want you to read it when you get it and just kind of savor the wording um, and enjoy it to the fullest, okay? <laughs> All right. Hey, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me just uh, quickly bring you up to speed because Paul in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is really focused on love. You wouldn't think that, maybe. All, you know, three chapters. But he really is focused on love. But we could say he's focused in, on love in work clothes. He's focused on love in practice. And he is trying to get to the Corinthians, especially those who are kind of in the upper class, you know, the notables, and even perhaps uh, in the class of the elite within their society. They're so excited they're Christians, you know? But it's a little hard for them sometimes to trade off their rights for the practical work of loving others. And in that in that environment, in that culture, in that city, in that day, that was a real hard, hard spot for some of the folks there. Because people were of different classes. There were the lower class and there were the upper class. And it was hard for them to give up their rights. That's kind of the general theme. But it doesn't really make it any harder on them than us to love. It's just tough to love other people. I mean, isn't that true? It's tough to love other people. And it's really tough to love other people like Jesus. It's tough to love other people at home. It's tough to give up our rights because we expect them, you know, to understand us and what? It's tough to love other people at work, people that don't appreciate the efforts you've, you've made or perhaps to take advantage for, of the work that you've done, put their name on it 
or maybe they're just ornery, you know, born ornery. Or at school, where we so want to be accepted, so want to be a part of what's going on, so want to count. It's tough to put the love of Jesus into practice. Love, that kind of love, Jesus' kind of love, always begins with realizing that God first loved us. In fact, uh, last Sunday we touched on Philippians as we uh, referred to, to what we were reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because Philippi was a Roman colony just like Corinth was. Kind of a Greek heritage and background, deep in history, but now Roman through and through in so many practical ways and in terms of uh, efforts and desires and what really counts in life. And Paul says to the Philippians, he said, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be clinched and held onto and protected and just, you know, made a barrier to what God wanted him to do. So he, he just kind of took off. You know, he set aside. He emptied himself, taking the form of a man, being found human, a servant, obedient unto death, death on a cross. That's what Paul says is love. And you know what he uses that example for? For us to kind of put others first. He says just before saying, have this attitude, have this mindset in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who was God, but got down here with us, set it all aside. Just before that, he says, set the interests of others ahead of your own. Don't just look out for your own interests. That's the issue here, and it takes love, God's love, knowing that He first loved us, for us to have the love that God wants us to show as His disciples. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. We can't love like that without Jesus. The message of his love is the starting point, but there's a mission. That love has to fill our hearts, motivate us, influence us, flow through us. And we have to express that to others, that people might say, that person follows Jesus. That's Jesus' kind of living. That's Jesus' kind of love. That's what people are to see in us. Not just the message, but the mission of his love. Here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul's been banging away at love. 
because they stop loving when their rights and privileges get in the way. That's the limit. You just think about that a moment, and we can, we can relate, but just think about that. If our rights and privileges, what we think people should be and do, if that becomes the impetus or the incentive or the motivation for love, then in effect we're saying that within these boundaries I'll love you, but beyond those boundaries I won't. Those are the boundaries that Jesus set aside. Will we fail? Yes. But we've got to keep scaling and crossing those boundaries to love others as Jesus first and does love us. So in chapter 8 we saw when this started, because the issue of their rights had to do with food. But Paul is addressing the first concern in the very first verse of chapter 8 after he mentions the food is knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He is on that, on that, on that issue all the way through. And in chapter 8, he says, you've got your rights right, but not God's love right. And then in chapter 9, he uses his own rights. Sometimes people think that he's left the subject, but Paul talks about his rights. Look, if anybody's got rights, Paul says, I've got rights. And he details all of his rights. He wants them to see he is a man with rights and titles. He's entitled. But what does Paul say? He says, I set all those rights aside. I've never used those rights. Those rights are not what I'm all about, and they're not what you should be all about. And so in chapter 9, he uses his own rights as an example. Love over rights. And by the way, on this whole issue of rights and privileges and laws, Jesus said, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the whole law. And the apostles got that. In all of their writings, they emphasize the same thing. Love is not the side dish to the gospel. It is the very heart of it. In fact, if you try loving, and there's a place for love in every moment, in every activity, in every action and choice and decision of each and every day, Am I getting riled up here? Do I seem a little overheated? I, I guess I am a little bit on this. Because this should be our strongest motivation. And it's not just a concept, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. For all the problems of the Corinthians, you know, their divisions, their partisanship, fighting over food. This is a, like a different kind of food fight. For all of that, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if you have it all, if you have all knowledge, if you can prophesy, 
If you've done all these great things, what good is it? It's nothing, he says, without love. Love is still the heartbeat of what he's saying here in Corinthians and here in chapters 8 through 10. He started off with love. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. It edifies. It's constructive. It does the right thing. It helps people. It's courteous. It's gracious. It shows mercy. And then the very last verse of this, this whole chunk about giving up your rights because love is more powerful, he ends with chapter 11, verse 1. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. Mimic me as I mimic him. Follow me as I follow him. So Paul now wants to push things even further. And that brings us to chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. He says, I want you to love people like a world-class athlete. Let's read it. Do you not know <laughs> that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And, and what he's trying to say here is not that there's only one prize for all of us. What he's trying to say is all these people show self-discipline and sacrifice. They abstain from things. They dedicate themselves at the highest level, going the distance for a prize that they may not even win. And if they win the prize, it's perishable. Verse 25, every athlete, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, I've got a much higher motivation. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Sports teach life lessons. How many of you were engaged in sports in high school or maybe even before, you know, playing soccer? Have you, have you played? Hold your hands up. Keep them up there just for a second. How many of you play baseball, football, soccer? Gymnastics, yeah, look at all. I competed in wrestling, track and cross country. Um, what else? Baseball, and of course, a lot of informal sandlot kinds of sports. But you know, sports taught me sportsmanship, competing by the rules, being a gracious winner or loser. Handling adversity, teamwork, discipline, and sacrifice. I don't think Paul competed as an athlete. I, I, he may have, you know, in some athletic endeavors in his use, but I really don't. I think he was studying Torah at the feet of Gamaliel, as he says in Acts 26, 2 and 3. But I do believe he witnessed 
a lot of athletic competition in the urban cities, those grand and big cities of the Roman Empire that he visited to tell people about Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe he witnessed the Isthmian Games, which were held in Corinth in 49 and 51. Paul could have been there on both occasions. It was held every two years. Nothing was bigger than the Isthmian Games of all the games that were held across the Roman Empire except the Olympiad. It was a big deal, and Corinthians were really proud of it. In fact, I think Paul witnessed athletics, not only those such competitions, not only because he was in Corinth, but I, his, his letters are peppered with imagery from athletic competition. And not only athletic competition, but military competition. And they sometimes cross over. It's no surprise that sometimes the imagery overlaps because athletic training and military training grew up together. Athletics grew out of and apart with military preparation and training. Competition grew out of the arts of battle, running, jumping, wrestling, boxing, spear throwing or javelin, horse racing, chariot racing. These were all parts of what peoples in antiquity did to prepare their soldiers to defend themselves. And because athletics were so huge, writers of all kinds used them to illustrate and motivate people to motivate them to pursuits, not just of physical prowess or accomplishment, but accomplishments of the mind and the heart. I learned through athletics, and you have probably applied athletics. Harvey McKay, who I follow, writes articles, columnist in business in the newspaper. Maybe you read his stuff. I, I can't even count on the hand the times that he's used the application of athletics to different aspects of the business world and life in general, or talked about people who have become famous and notable in their accomplishments in business or government, statesmanship, or other areas of life because of athletics and what it taught them. I'm going to tell you something I learned from athletics. I learned that to get anywhere in life, it takes hard work. Athletics teaches that whether you're a musician, a writer, an athlete, or in business, there's no getting around it. If you work hard, you'll win. If you don't, you won't. I'm telling you, it's just that simple. Work hard, you'll win. You don't, you won't. Now that could be Paul's advice right here. If you read verses 24 through 7 in the light of what I just said, we could just take that right out of his letter to the Corinthians and we could apply it to all kinds of endeavors of life. In fact, what Paul is saying here, we could apply to all the things that interest us in life, all the things that really matter to us, all the highest priorities and goals of our lives. The irony of that is that Paul is saying, you're all shooting for the wrong thing. You ought to be applying that same principle to Jesus Christ. You should be focusing on him, running for him, striving for him, 
keeping your eyes on him. He should be the ultimate target of your life. He says everything else, even the highest performance at the games, in which you can't find a person that sacrifices more to achieve a crown, to achieve a prize that only one can win, a distinction beyond comparison, a distinction, by the way, that is perishable. It will wither. It dies. It will be forgotten. And they will do all that for something that is perishable. What Paul is saying here is that he wants us to love Jesus, to love like him, and to do that, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus because we compete for the highest prize, verses 24 and 5. And because we, to compete for the highest prize, must perform at our highest level. A lot of us will respond to that. I responded to my pastor as a young Christian. He said, you'll work so hard to be an attorney, to be an athlete. You'll work so hard. You'll give everything in those pursuits. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, you want to just glide. You want to just float. You don't think that because his love is free. You know, because he loves us first. He doesn't make us jump through hoots, hoops, climb on our bellies under barbed wire, uh, run through mud or in the rain or in the sleet, because God doesn't make us do all of those things. Somehow we don't think that it isn't the most precious thing in all the world and that it shouldn't, out of the knowledge and experience of his love overflow in our endeavors in our lives. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. And I mention that because, as I said, Philippians is also a Roman colony. They're proud of their heritage. They're proud of their Roman citizenship. This is what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There are athletic overtones here. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I may share in his sufferings, become like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's athletic language. That's the language of the games. That's the language of the stadium. That's the language of competition. Here's what the writer of Hebrews said in the first, first two verses of what is ch chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here are all the spectators. The arena is filled. We're in the midst of competition. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand on the throne of God. We are to be world-class athletes in loving others as God first loved us. That's the underlying issue here in these chapters. Will you overlook an interruption, a slight? Can you? Do you have what it takes? Can you, can you climb over that insult? that wrong, that neglect of somebody? Can you hurdle that? In, in, in their issue, their issue was food. What's ours? What about, yes, I know, it's your husband. He should know better. Yes, he can be an ox. But can you climb over that, past that, 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 failure to remember your anniversary or whatever, and vice versa. Wife, she can be difficult. Peck, 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 peck. But can you get past that? Can you see beyond that? Can you hurdle that? Do you have the resources in you in Jesus Christ? If you can't do it in those little things, how are we going to do it out there on the roads and in the supermarket? Of all places, like we're on the battlefield of life in the supermarket and we cannot look past the insults and disregards of people. What's going to happen when the gun really sounds and the race really counts? How are we going to be seen as disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of him, when it comes to issues of racism and people of different gender distinction or self-identification? How are we going to ever cut it? If we aren't doing it all the time, if we don't realize we're gearing up. I told you I was a, a runner. My best two-mile time was 11 minutes, 20 seconds. Not great, but that was cross-country in Merced. That was my best time. I could not even imagine somebody running a sub-four-minute mile. Roger Bannister was a kind of a hero of mine, even though he had done that, but the first man to break the four-minute mile. That was, that was a huge thing that he did in that day. And I got to tell you, um, nobody thought it could be done. 
When he broke the record on May 6, 1954, I was just a few months old. Well, I was a year and a few months. That's why my memory on the issue is a little fuzzy, but... <laughs> the crowd, when, when the announcer said three, they all just erupted. I mean, it was just such a huge accomplishment. They didn't even wait to hear the full and accurate time. It was three minutes, 59 seconds, point four seconds. But here's what's important. Afterward, Bannister said, he said he had run 20,000 miles in eight years of ceaseless preparation for the day of reckoning. 20,000 miles in eight years of ceaseless preparation for the day of reckoning. I just like the idea that this man prepared and prepared and prepared. He really didn't know when he would break that record. And I just want us to think about our lives in following Christ. We don't always set the venue. We don't always set the timetable. But people watch. They, they are influenced by us. You can make a difference in this world. The stage may not be as big, but you can make a difference where you're at. And look what God will will do with that, but we'll never know without years of ceaseless preparation, ceaseless preparation for the day of reckoning. Paul's advice applies to any goal, any goal. You could take this and apply it in any of your endeavors, but he wants us to run for Jesus. I took this picture back in the 70s when Madeline Manning came to my hometown. We had a, an annual, a big track meet. World-class runners came. Manning was world record holder, she, Olympic medalist. But even when she's in the track, on the track and doing track, she's running for Jesus and she displays it on her shirt. That so impressed me. What's your goal? You can't score a goal unless you have one. Sometimes we're very focused in all the other things of life that we do, but we're not as focused and determined, and we're not ready to set things aside that slow us down in order to run fast and run for Christ. Let me bring out the sense of what Paul is saying here in verse 26. The flow of the thought... Because I know in the ESV it says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But let me translate it with a little fuller sense and bring out what Paul is saying. He says, you know what? I compete too. I know I'm asking you to sacrifice, but I sacrifice too. I run. And I don't run as though I cannot see clearly where I'm going. He knows where he's going. He can see what he's running after. That's what he's saying. When it's translated, I don't run aimlessly. It really has to do with his line of vision. He says, I can see what I'm going after. I run, and I don't run as though I don't know where I'm going. He says, I box, but I don't box as one who can't land his punches. 
I mean, really, I know how sometimes it is translated. It can refer to shadow boxing, but not here. When you box, if you're hitting the air, which is the precise thing he's saying, he says, when I box, I don't hit the air, folks. You know what he's saying? I hit the target. When I box, I hit the opponent. In other words, I don't miss. That's the way we've got to lead our lives in Christ. Not running as though we don't know where we're going. But what are your eyes on? What's your target? What are you trying to hit? What's the finish line? If you have a goal, there's no secret to success. If Jesus is your goal, it's the same secret. Ambition, hard work, dedication. This idea of just floating along in the Christian life, and I don't know if it's because of grace, because it's free, because God loved us first, that we just think, well, he'll just, he'll just say it's okay later. Jesus died for my sins. It doesn't matter what I do. I'll end up, you know, in the right place. Paul's saying, that attitude stinks. You know, and if we're, if we're sour pusses as people, that's just all wrong. I'm not saying you are sour pusses. I don't know there are any sour pusses here. We ought to be sweet pusses. Very sweet pusses in Christ. I didn't say that in the first service. You are extra lucky. I, you know, I know we like to say Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It looks so good on paper. I even like to hear it come out of my mouth. Jesus plus nothing, equal, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I believe that. But what does it mean to us when we're planning? What does it mean to us when we're making decisions? What does it mean to us when we're setting our priorities? What does it mean to us when someone interrupts us or cuts us off on the road or says we're not worth their time or anything else? How do we respond at those times? Do we respond as though our eyes are on Jesus and that he is the prize and that in his love we can follow him and be known as his disciple? Do others see his love in us? We're going to stumble, we're going to fall, but we're going to get back up and keep on going. The last thing you want to do is look back. The last thing you want to do is look back. Roger Bannister went on to be a doctor. He's now Dr. Roger Bannister. He's retired now. He's still alive. He went on to become a distinguished neurologist and master of Pembroke College, Oxford. When asked about the four-minute mile and whether that was his proudest achievement, he said he felt prouder of his contribution to academic medicine through research into the responses of the nervous system. What if you just sat back and said, that was the greatest moment in my life. I just don't want to do anything else. You know, you're going to have great triumphs in Christ, but it's, it's the future. Jesus didn't die on the cross for us to get stuck in the past or just keep going back there to forgive our sins. Yeah, we need that forgiveness to know that we're right with him, that he loves us. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can change that. That message is precious, but there's a mission that comes out of that message, and that's to love others. Our greatest achievements are not behind us. They're before us. They're this, the rest of this day, tomorrow, and this week. 
So set your eyes on Jesus and don't look back. Seven weeks after Bannister broke the four-minute mile and set the world record, seven weeks later, John Landy broke the record. Bannister holds the record. He'll always be the first man to break the four-minute record, that four-minute mile mark. But he also is, will always be known as holding the world record the shortest amount of time. But in August, after John Landy broke the world record and was the record holder, they met at the Commonwealth Games on August 7th, 1954. It was billed, it was a global event. It was billed as the mile of the century or the miracle mile. And John Landy led the race in the third of four laps. He had a 10-yard lead on Bannister. And when he came around that last bend and was making his way to the straightaway toward the finish line, he looked back over his left shoulder to see if Bannister was gaining on him. And at the same time he looked back, Bannister burst by him on the right to win the race. It was the critical moment in the race, and both of them agreed. In fact, so big was that moment, it's been memorialized in bronze. That's Landy looking over his shoulder as Bannister speeds by him on the right. Landy said, and I quote, while Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back, I'm probably the only one ever turned into bronze for looking back. <laughs> you know, the wreath actually was perishable. It was depending on the games and location and the tradition. It, you know, they were made of, of, in some cases, laurel or palm or olive uh, or grape. Uh, pine needles were even used as at the Isthmian Games. It was a perishable crown, and it wasn't just the crown itself. It was to be to have it placed upon your head by the nobility of either the president of the games or the emperor himself. That's really that's that's really what we seek—not the crown itself, but the king who honors us. We stand.